Hey, this is Phil Vaughn. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast, a few minutes each week focused on learning how to follow Jesus. New episodes drop every Sunday. You can also find written content at lifebeginswithdeath.org. If you'd like to support the work of the blog and the podcast, then visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Phil Vaughn. Or you can just hop on the blog and follow the link to Patreon. It's a way to support the work and uh, encourage it uh, with a small donation each month. All right, with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode. Hey, thanks for coming back to the podcast. It's been a while since we have uploaded a new podcast. It uh, actually was the middle of September, so it's been a a couple months at least. So we're glad to be back uh, in the process of moving and selling a home in Parker and relocating here in Castle Rock. Uh, We've been a little busy, and this thing has moved to the the back burner. But now we're glad to uh, get things started again. We're going to launch this month a four-week series on the Book of Ruth. And it's also centered around the Christmas story. It's a powerful story in the book of Ruth, one that resonates with us, any of us that have experienced uh, loss or difficulty, pain in our lives. And so I encourage you to open up the Old Testament story of Ruth, follow along, and maybe uh, dig into the Christmas story as well. hope it's meaningful to you, and I hope some of the tie-ins to the Christmas story will make this Christmas season more meaningful as you celebrate uh, Advent, Christmas, Waiting for the Messiah and the coming birth of Christ. Well, as the holidays are approaching, my question to you is this. Are you excited about it or do you dread it? Do you anticipate it? What kind of person are you? Do you think about all of the decorations that you're going to pull out and you just get giddy with excitement and you think about shopping and you think about family and peanut butter fudge or whatever your family makes that makes you think it? How many of you anticipate with lots of excitement, the holidays. Let me see your hands, just a little poll, right? Okay, very good. How many of you have this sense of uneasiness and dread that comes over you when the holidays come close? Let me see your hands. Okay, about the same. Now, here's here's a, I don't think those two groups are mutually exclusive. I think you could be a part of both. How many of you would say that your feelings are in both camps? You're excited and you dread it. Let me see your hands. Okay, so that's more of you. If you knew that was an option, you would have voted that way as right when we started. The holidays are complicated. They're complicated because of so many reasons. Because of family, because of hopes, because of dreams, because of expectations. And the holidays are designed purposefully to raise expectations. I remember when I was a kid coming down into the living room early in December and seeing this near the Christmas tree wrapped with my name on it. A box just about this size. And I began to wonder, is it? Do you think it could be? I mean, I told mom and dad what I wanted, but I wonder if they saw the list. I wonder if they thought it was too expensive. Could this be the thing I want? Could it be something even better I didn't even know I wanted? You know what that's like. I wonder. And how cruel is it to put this December 2nd near a Christmas tree (laughs) while you just have to walk by it every day wondering And the truth is, as your hopes build and your expectations increase, there is absolutely no way in the world, anything in the world could be shoved into this box that would meet my hopes. There's no chance. 
two, three weeks later, nothing could meet the expectations that I have. It's how Christmas is designed. It's how the holidays are designed. And then we have reality that sets in as we get older and we experience the difficulty and some of the pain and disappointment from all the hopes that we've had. And the holidays are complicated. And so it makes sense. Christmas is this mixed bag for me and for you. And the truth is, it's not just Christmas that's that way. It, it, it is this way. It, Christmas just puts a big magnifying glass on what is true about every other part of our lives. That we bring a set of hopes and expectations and dreams into every part of our life. And when we do so, we're set up for a level of disappointment that is real and grave and difficult to handle. We bring a he- hefty set of expectations into our life in almost every category. In fact, the statement in the program says this. We begin different seasons of our lives with a variety of hopes and dreams. And this gift box is just one representation of it. And when we begin our lives, when we start out as young people, we think about our career and the things that we hope for and dream and want to experience. We think about all of the ways that we will conquer the world. And we will conquer it in our area of expertise. We'll find ourselves experiencing success like we know is bound to come our way. And maybe it's the corner office. Maybe it's a six-figure salary. Maybe it is domination in some area of our understanding. Whatever it is, we know when we begin, graduate from college, expose ourselves to an area of industry that we'll be successful. We can't imagine a life that's different than that. And we hope that this success will bring about all kinds of good results in our lives. Probably the biggest of which is what we would call financial freedom. I remember when Donna and I got married. Young, very young. The salary that we were earning together was just enough to barely make ends meet. You remember this experience long ago for you? And it was a good day when we could scrape together just a few dollars and spend an hour at McDonald's. That was eating out. And we longed for a day, we hoped for a day, we dreamed of a day when that would no longer be a hardship on our budget, a happy meal, right? And you and I, we hope for all of these things, this future where we can have what we want, buy what we want, take care of our needs, and be secure in our retirement. And when this financial freedom doesn't come, things begin to come loose in our lives. For some of us, we have come along in our lives and we have desired what we hoped would be or result in the perfect marriage. We have found the right person, the right man, the right woman, the spouse that we will grow old with. And as we embark on this journey, we know that our marriage will not be like maybe our parents. Our marriage will not be like so many people that we know that have ended up in bad places. Our marriage will be different the hopes and dreams that we experience. Maybe connected to that marriage, we hope that some of the fruit of it will come as a result of our smart and obedient (laughs) and our beautiful children. We hope that they will overcome our DNA (laughs) and that for some reason they will look so much different than us and act different than us. I've seen parents hold their little children and know that they hold the next Pulitzer Prize winner a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, the very next Einstein, crack the code, 
of the genome. Whatever it is, they just know that this will be the child that changes the world. And as we grow, all of our hopes and dreams and expectations are really framed about this one idea, that we'll live a long time, that our health will sustain it, and that we will look 10, 20, 25 years younger than we feel or than other people think we look like, and that this will maintain itself through our lives. All of these hopes and dreams that we experience in our life, and we begin our life with these. And we could have a hundred signs on this stage that would represent every area of our lives. Maybe your hopes and dreams center around your academic career, your hope for a scholarship, valedictorian, a 4.0. Maybe it centers around something athletic, and you know that even though the odds are slim, you're going to find yourself being picked first in the draft or recruited to play. And these hopes and dreams are there. And here's the interesting thing about these hopes and dreams. These are all good things that we want. All of these things that you and I want for our lives or maybe for the lives of our children, they're the kinds of things that we think everybody should have. Everybody should have these. In fact, these are the kinds of things that surely God wants for us. He wants these for us as well. I mean, they aren't unreasonable. They're fair and they're appropriate and they make sense. I mean, who on their wedding day, looks at their beautiful spouse-to-be and says, you know what, here's my hope, that we just have a peaceful divorce settlement <laughs> when that time finally comes. Nobody, nobody thinks that. Our expectations don't start low, they start high. That's where they should be. Who holds their baby and says to the mom or to the dad, I just hope we don't raise a felon. That's my hope. <laughs> nobody says that. And then life happens. And then life happens to us. And something happens in the process to our hopes and our dreams and our expectations. Maybe we've given up on the corner office and we hope just for a cube. Just a cube. That's all I want. Or maybe just a job. My retirement isn't working out. That bucket isn't filling up near as fast. God, this just isn't happening. And the financial freedom that I wanted, because of course... The corner office allows for that. It isn't going to occur. And now I'm wondering if retirement will happen, not when. And I don't understand why somebody who works hard all of their life finds themselves in a position like I'm in, in need of so much more. I thought it was going to go different than this. It doesn't take long for you to be married for a year or two for some of us even shorter to realize we don't have a perfect marriage and so we settle for an adequate marriage. Or if you're single and you don't want to be, any marriage, anything. It's difficult. It's hard when you realize how much work it takes to keep a relationship together. And it just seems like it ought to be easier than that. And then one day you wake up and you look at your kids and you think, you know what? Two out of the three, Lord. <laughs> just give me two out of the three. For some of us, just one, Lord. Just one. It's hard. Raising kids. Managing expectations. And then, of course, we do whatever we need to do, whatever we'll have to do to maintain the illusion that we're not aging, that life will go on. And then eventually, we give in. And age takes its toll. And it shows up in so many ways. Life can do a number on your expectations. Life changes 
what you expect. And the result is this. You and I end up in a place where we're afraid to hope. We're afraid to want something different than what God has given us or blessed our lives with. We learn to live with this sort of low-level disappointment that is always present. And we believe and become cynical that the promises that are out there surely can't be met. That the way God describes life in Scripture is just a fantasy, that it can't be the case. Listen close. If you have ever dealt with significant disappointment in your life, if you have ever found yourself wondering, why is God not cooperating with my plans? Why is life not working out the way I think it should? Then this series is for you. The next few weeks could change your perspective on who God is, how he works, and what he's up to in your life. Wouldn't you like, through the holidays, a little bit of clarity about how God works in your life? And if that's you, the next few weeks may prove to be very valuable in your heart, in your marriage, in your singleness, as an empty nester, as a young kid with all sorts of these hopes and dreams waiting in the wings. If that's the case, then dig in, because I believe you're going to learn a lot from the story of Ruth and the story of Mary and Joseph. And so over the next few weeks, we'll take a look at two stories, as we've said, throughout Scripture. And these two stories are significant, and they may change our lives. Of course, we'll look at the Christmas story, the story of Mary and Joseph, and we'll look at a little part of it every week that we're together between now and Christmas. But we'll also take a look at a more obscure story that's nestled in the pages of the Old Testament, a story that doesn't get much attention. It's only four chapters long. It's very short, and it's called the book of Ruth. Maybe you've never read it, and if you have, you know that the story of Ruth has many connections to the Christmas story, and we'll explore a few as we go through the story. You could read the story of Ruth from beginning to end, all four chapters, in about 20 minutes. What we're going to do is talk about one chapter a week. And if you've not read yet, maybe you've not picked up a reading guide or you didn't know about that, or maybe you've never tried this. We've talked about it now for two years and you haven't tried it yet. The Christmas season will be a great time for you to pick one up and just give it a whirl. It will change your experience in the holidays and help you draw close to God in new ways. In the story of Ruth, we have this narrative told that takes place in between two very specific seasons of Israel's life back in the Old Testament. It takes place after the Israelites have made their way to the promised land, after slavery, after Moses, all of that. They are in the land of Israel now, and it takes place before they have their very first king. Now, we just got done with the story of David. He was Israel's second king, the king before him we talked about a lot as well, King Saul. All of this takes place before God gives Israel a king. They call it the time of the judges. In fact, let me read to you just the very first verse of the book that helps set the stage of what occurs. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem, a city you're familiar with in the story of Jesus, in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And with this one verse, the story begins. And the story takes place over a period of about 10, 15 years. All we know as the story unfolds, is that there is a man in Bethlehem. His name is Elimelech, and he's married to a woman. Her name is Naomi. They have two sons. In their homeland, Bethlehem, in the area of Judah, not that far from Jerusalem, a famine breaks out. Elimelech and his family leave 
the land of Bethlehem and go to a foreign country, Moab. And while they're there, life happens. The same way it happens to me, the same way it happens to you. Some good things happen. Some disappointments occur. When you read the chapter 1, then you realize that what occurs is Naomi is there, Elimelech is there, her two, her two sons are there. They're there taking care of their family. Her two sons marry women from Moab. And over the course of just a few verses in chapter 1, the story begins to unfold. Naomi loses her husband, Elimelech. She becomes a widow. She also loses her two sons, and she's left with her two daughters-in-law. All this occurs in the span of about 10 years, very short time. In the span of 10 years, Naomi, her family, they experience two weddings and three funerals. We all know when tragedy occurs. We read about it in the paper. We hear about it from friends and family. Somebody is killed in a car accident. Somebody receives a diagnosis. Somebody has something terrible happen in their family. Occasionally, we'll hear of a story, and when the story unfolds from a neighbor or a family member or a co-worker, that somebody was diagnosed with cancer, and then they lost a family member. And then, on the heels of this, a financial tragedy occurs. And when we hear these stories, we just begin to be, feel heavy with the burden of life's domino effect. This is what happens to Naomi. One tragedy after another. And in this place, in this space for Naomi, life seems incredibly unfair. I can't believe that this would occur. We expect some misfortune in life, but that it happens in layers like this to Naomi. It feels just unbearable. So Naomi decides that it's time to head home. In addition, she hears that the famine is over, that God has now blessed the people in Judah with prosperity, and so she begins to make her way back home. Her two daughters-in-law, named Orpah and Ruth, decide, as widows themselves, to return back home with her. And so they begin to make the journey. After they've left Moab, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and says simply one very pointed thing. You shouldn't go back with me. I can't provide for you. I can't take care of you. Go home. Maybe God will give you what you need through another man, through a husband that you're yet to meet. Orpah listens and turns around and goes back to Moab. Ruth, however, decides that she will continue. In fact, one of the most moving parts in the Old Testament is what Ruth says to Naomi. Here's what she says. I'm not going to go back. How can I return? You are my people. In fact, she says to Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. May God deal with me ever so severely if I ever leave your side. We're family now, and we're going to go through whatever we're going to go through together. And so she returns. Now, as Naomi is making her way back into town, into Bethlehem, with Ruth by her side, the town begins to stir. And as the town stirs, they look and they see Naomi. And where's Elimelech? Where are the two boys, the ones that we knew 10 years ago? Her family has changed, and they begin to ask this question. Can this be Naomi? Can this be the woman that left? She looks different. And you can imagine what years of tragedy, difficulty, and pain have shown now on her face, shown now in the stress that she wears. And in fact, 
As they say, could this be Naomi? Here's what Naomi says back to them. You'll see it on the screen. It's in chapter 1. She says this. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara sounds like the word for bitter. I am not pleasant, she says. I am bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And then she continues by saying this. I went away full. When I left, you saw. I had my family. God was taking care of us. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Now I am empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Her life is not going the way she thought it would go. Life has changed her expectations. A very similar thing happened about 1,300 years later with a man named Joseph. Life happened to him as well, and it changed his expectations. Let me read to you part of the Christmas story out of the Gospel of Matthew. Happens in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what Matthew writes. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind, listen closely, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, in our culture, that doesn't make sense. We don't understand. Well, if they're engaged, why would a divorce even come into play? Engagement was very different in Mary and Joseph culture. It was the same as being married. All that remained was the wedding ceremony in their life. So they were essentially married. In fact, for them to part ways, it would require a decree of divorce. And so you can imagine Joseph, small town man, we know he's a probably a carpenter. The scriptures say that he worked with his hands, that he was some sort of craftsman, that he had hopes and dreams. All of the things that you and I have, people are the same now as they were back then. Every one of the signs that we had up earlier and many more could represent what Joseph hopes for his life, what he hopes for his future. And one day he finds out his future is going to be very different than he imagined. Here's what we know about the Christmas story. God let Mary know beforehand before she conceived that this was going to happen. He clued her in. He did not clue Joseph in. Quite unfortunate for Joseph that he didn't get a heads up about what was going on. Mary knew before, and I can only imagine the conversation between Mary and Joseph. When she comes to him to say, hey, I got something to tell you. And you're not going to understand, I'm afraid. I know we're married, and we haven't been together yet, but I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. Can you imagine how Joseph would have felt? What is it like to realize that the woman or the man that you have put your trust in is not the person you thought they were? What is it like to watch your hopes and your dreams evaporate before your very eyes? What is it like to realize that the person that you thought was loyal to you is not? 
what dies that day? What goes away? Some of you know. Some of you have been on the receiving end of that very news. This is where Joseph finds himself. And of course, then it gets funny because she says, it's not what you think. I'm pregnant through the Holy Spirit. What is Joseph thinking? Look, Mary, if you're going to mess around, just own it. Don't blame it on God. Don't get spiritual with me. It's okay. And Joseph, being an honorable man, full of integrity, simply says to her, look, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. I'm not going to embarrass you publicly. We'll take care of this in a quiet way. I mean, your reputation is going to suffer. You're having a baby, but I'm not going to be a part of that. And in that moment, his dreams disappear. What would that be like? This is where Naomi finds herself. This is where Joseph finds himself. Maybe this is where you find yourself today. That you know that the hopes and dreams that you have for your life, represented by all the things that we've discussed, they're lessened now. Disappointment has set in. And one of the results is you find yourself wondering, is God enough? Is he enough? Do I need to find my way in another avenue? Do I need to make my own way in life? Is God enough? And if you're in that place, there are a few things I want you to know. And as we said, this week sets up the rest of the series. This is the question that we wrestle with when life happens to us. And it changes our expectations, our hopes, and our dreams. But let me give you a glimpse of where we're going. Three statements in your program that I'll reference as we wrap up. The first is this. God empties us so that he can fill us. This is what happens with Naomi. She even says, I went away full, but now I am empty. What we're going to see as this story unfolds is that God often must empty us of lesser desires, of the things that we think will be satisfying, of the things that we think we want so that he can fill us with desires only for him. This is a difficult and painful process. But the truth is this, often God must empty us before he can fill us. And you'll see this occur. I also want you to know this before we're done. The space between emptying and filling can be a difficult and dangerous time. It's where bitterness can set in. It's where a hardness of heart can take over. This space is where cynics are born. This is what happens to people who decide, I will not trust God with who I am, with my life, with my hopes or my dreams anymore. I've experienced disappointment too often to believe that he is good or that he is enough. The space between is a difficult and a dangerous time. For Naomi, it was when her husband dies, she loses two sons and comes back empty. For Joseph, it's when he looks at his fiancée, in fact his wife, and wonders, how could she be so disloyal? And God, what are you up to? And why is my life turning out this way? The space between, and if you're in it, pay attention, can be difficult and dangerous. But the last gives you a bit of hope. God never wastes pain. Never. Pain is too precious in God's world. Pain is what bought your forgiveness on the cross. Pain is what redeemed you from the pit. God never wastes pain. Let me give you one more glimpse of hope as we wrap up today. When the story begins, we are in the middle of a famine. A famine where people are in need. 
Listen to the last phrase about their returning to Bethlehem. It's at the end of chapter 1. Maybe you read it this week. Maybe you'll read it this afternoon. Here's what occurs as they are about to come home. As they come back, they walk into Bethlehem. Arriving in Bethlehem, the very last words of chapter 1, as the barley harvest was beginning. If you are in the space between God emptying you and filling you, here's what I want you to know. God is up to something. Seeds have been planted. The harvest is coming. There is growth that is occurring. It may not feel like it. It may be painful. It may be so difficult you want to give up, but I want you to know God is at work even when it feels like he's not. He's not distant. He's close, especially to the brokenhearted. If you're in the space between, stick with us through this month. Watch how this story develops and give God a chance to show you something about his character, how much he loves you, and how large his grace can be in your life.